begins Lent. Wednesday's the first day in Lent. And you might be wondering, why are we talking about Lent? I thought we were a Protestant church. Uh, the bottom line is, is that the 40 days leading up to the Thursday or Monday Thursday before Easter is an important time in the church calendar where we set our hearts on track towards the cross. And so Wednesday's the first day in Lent. Uh, if you're anything like me, you may have grown up in a faith tradition, be it Catholic or Anglican or Episcopal or Congregational, where uh, we would wear different colored robes on the Sundays before now and Easter. Um, we would have Ash Wednesday with the marking of uh, our foreheads with a little bit of ash. And there were different important steps that kind of we would eat fish on Fridays. There were different important steps to get our hearts and minds in the right place before Easter. In an attempt to, to follow those wonderful traditions that we don't observe, uh, we have something that we're going to launch on Wednesday that can be found on the YouVersion Bible app. And so if you're familiar with the YouVersion Bible app, it is free, and you can download it on your phone. And there are some wonderful reading plans and devotionals. And we were going to be going together as a church on a 40-day reading plan, a devotional reading plan, called 40 Days Journeying with Jesus. It's written by a woman named Susan Narhala, and it's a fantastic devotional. Trish and I read through the whole thing uh, in preparation for announcing it to River Church, and I'm very excited to introduce it to you. It probably take maybe five, ten minutes a day tops, and you can track your progress, and the app does a great job. If you get behind a couple of days, you just click the little catch me up button, and it'll catch you right back up to speed. You can pause it. And so right now, I have it saved under my plans, and uh, I will activate it on Wednesday and begin reading with you devotionally to prepare our hearts and minds together for Easter. This is a critical year for us to be on the same page as a church. Uh, we are going to grow in ways that we've never grown before. We're also going to be challenged in ways that we've never been challenged before. There's a lot of work before us. There's also a lot of reward before us. And so it is important that we take these first few months of the year uh, that are still not quite as crazy and as busy as it's going to be that we fall in love with each other all over again, that we grow in our appreciation for what God is doing in our church and in our own lives. And I think this would be a great way for us to prepare our hearts and minds for Easter. So if you have the version app or you can download it on your phone, it's free. Find 40 Days Journey with Jesus. And uh, if you make it public that you've joined that plan, you might see other River Church people start to pop up. And it'll kind of be a fun way for us to observe the Lenten season together. I'm going to be preaching through the same text that is a part of the devotional. So the devotional begins in Matthew chapter 26, verse 1, and takes us through the Great Commission, which is the conclusion of the Gospel of Matthew. And so I'll be preaching through that text between now and Easter, and going in a completely different direction than the devotions. And uh, whether it's the sermon content or the devotional content, there's so much to be talking about with our friends and in our small groups uh, I think it will be a very encouraging time. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 through 16 together today. Those verses will be on the screen. But again, if you do have your Bible or your app, I encourage you to open it up because there might be something that you want to write, uh, whether it be in your Bible or in your app, uh, as we go through the text this morning. I want to introduce you to one of the most jarring transitions that is found in the New Testament, arguably the most jarring transition found in the Gospel of Matthew. And here's what it is. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all of this, the Olivet Discourse, which is the previous few chapters, 
he told his disciples, you know that the Passover takes place after two days or in two days. So uh, the triumphal procession had already taken place. Jesus had entered Jerusalem. That would have been on Palm Sunday. That had already taken place. And it is now two days before Maundy Thursday uh, or the first Passover. You know that the Passover takes place after two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. I mean, he just drops it like it's hot with his disciples. This is what is going to happen. And the rest of the Gospels of Matthew is laser-focused on Jesus' journey to the cross. As we're going to see, every single interaction Jesus has over the next two, two and a half chapters he is recentering people's attention on this statement right here. You know that the Passover takes place after two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And here's the crazy thought. Read the next verse. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so there won't be rioting among the people. Please understand that for the first time in Jesus' ministry, he and the chief priests are on the same page. He and the chief priests are tracking in the same direction. Now, Jesus is heading to the cross for his own reasons, and the chief priests are heading to the cross for treacherous reasons. That's what the text says. But please understand that they have a common goal at this time. Never happened in the New Testament until this moment. And the rest of Matthew's gospel is laser-focused on this journey to the cross. How does Jesus get there? And how do the chief priests connive their way to place him there? They are in lockstep. So pivotal, so important is this idea that Jesus is going to the cross to be crucified. There's no doubt about where the text is going, and Jesus is speaking very clearly to his disciples. And obviously, as you, as you may be familiar with this text, the disciples have no idea what is happening. As we continue through the text, it will be clear. You know that I have the highest of regards and love for my wife. High school sweethearts, been dating forever, terribly, deeply in love, coming up on 30 years of marriage in a year and a half or so. Couldn't be happier. Couldn't be more... Put our marriage to any test you want, and we will pass it. Bottom line. It's ridiculous. When the story gets told of great love stories, we get a chapter. That's, that's just real. I'm not saying anything that isn't true. The more you get to know us, the more you're going to find that the core truth of my life outside of, outside of salvation is how crazy in love we are with each other. That means I get to say stuff about her that um, I want to tell you about something that you can't do. So we're good, right? We're solid. In high school, we decided that uh, it might be fun to play tennis because it's something that we can do uh, with each other without being close enough to touch each other, which honestly was a very good thing for us in high school. Moving on. So we're playing tennis. <laughs> you know, I start off by serving overhand. I'm not a great tennis player, but I played anything with a ball as a child and, you know, can pretty much pick up anything. Not great, but suitable, right? So I start off by serving overhand, and my dear sweet girlfriend is having a terrible time returning. She's not returning anything. 
No serves are being returned. Okay. And so, you know, I kind of go to the underhand, gentle lob serve. And after about 20 minutes of this, what we thought would be a fun uh, together activity where we just, you know, that's ping pong, but it's tennis, right? Uh, it's not going well. She's not returning anything. Nothing is coming, but it's a very lopsided tennis game. And I, I finally, I, I, you know, I'm trying to provide a little gentle coach, and here I am, I'm that guy, right, trying to help my, girl, help my girlfriend play tennis better. So you know where this is going to go. And finally, I said something like this, babe, the, the secret to tennis, the key to tennis, because what it's looking like to me is that you're not reacting to the ball until it comes over the net. It looks like you're not even beginning to move until the ball is crossing the net, and then it takes a bounce, and now you're trying to respond and make a return. And it doesn't matter how slow I, I, I serve it or how close to you I serve it if you're not responding before the ball crosses the net. So it looks to me, she's like, so you've got, and then I said something completely ridiculous. I said, the key to tennis is you have to track the ball from the moment it hits the racket on my side of the court. You have to interpret my, how high I throw the ball, how deep my swing is, the position of my body, and then you have to track the ball from the crack of the bat. You have to track the ball from the swing of the racket. And she said something I'll never forget. She goes, I can't see the ball until it comes over the net. I said, what? I, I don't know what you're talking about. I can't see the ball until it comes over the net. Well, that would explain why we're having this tennis game that we're having right now. She has no depth perception. My wife is one of the most talented, hardest working, intelligent people you will ever see. If you hit a ball over the net to her, she can't see it until it's coming to the net. So whatever she does, it's too little, too late. People don't play tennis with Trish. Unless you really need a boost that day in your tennis game. You just need to tell the story of how you just slaughtered somebody in tennis. She could crack in the back. She thought it was about the sound. Anyone who plays baseball knows that you track the ball from the moment it hits the bat. Anyone who plays baseball knows that you track the pitch from the moment it leaves the pitcher's hand. Anyone who plays shortstop knows that you're tracking the ball at the crack of the bat. It's just the easy way to say you're picking it up off the bat. That has never been a part of my life's life. You track the jump shot when it releases the fingertips. You know where to move for the rebound before the ball even hits the rim. That's how you succeed in the world of sports. And if you can't see that, if you have no depth perception, you're done. You'll never succeed in the world of sports. As wonderful and as amazing as my wife is, she has no depth perception. She's never had it, never will. Don't play tennis with her. Jesus says something here that the disciples are not going to trap with. Now, he had served them a lot. He had positioned his ministry in such a place during the Olivet Discourse that the disciples should have been able to see it from the swing of the racket or the crack of the bat. It, and I don't have these words on the screen, but if you go back into Matthew chapter 25, and into, uh, there are three different stories that Jesus shares during the Olivet Discourse where he is saying, who is the good and faithful and sensible slave? This is how chapter 25 actually begins. Who is the good and faithful and sensible servant? He tells three stories. The good and faithful, sensible servant is the one who, like a 
A wise bridesmaid brings not just enough oil for the anticipated arrival of the bridegroom, but brings enough in case the bridegroom is delayed. The foolish uh, bridesmaid does not. He goes on to say that the wise and faithful servant is like a master who goes on a journey and he gives $1,000 to one servant, $500 to another servant, and $100 to another. And how they spend that money in anticipation of his return is the measure of their faithfulness. Jesus says that the wise and faithful servant on the day of judgment is like a shepherd dividing the sheep from the goats. Lord, Lord, when do we ever see you in need? When do we ever see you naked? When do we ever see you hungry and thirsty? When do we ever see you in prison and sick and went to visit you? I tell you truly that when you've done this to the least of these, you've done it unto me. The wise and faithful servants are the ones who anticipate the master's needs. The wise and faithful servants are the ones who, in the absence of the master, are doing the work of the ministry as if the master is there, and they will pick up right where the master left off when he comes. The wise and faithful slave, according to Matthew chapter 25, three different narratives, the wise and faithful servant is the one with depth perception, who is moving at the crack of the bat, the swing of the racket, positioning themselves to serve the master in accordance to where his trajectory is going. Three narratives found in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is serving a high-hanging curveball. It's an underhand lob serve. It's this, he's leading them well. The wise and faithful servant are the ones with depth perception. The one Here's the crack of the bat. The ones who can see where my ministry is going and meet me in that place, even though I'm not walking with you side by side. You know that the Passover takes place after two days and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. The disciples' response is called the anointing at Bethany. Picking up the text in Matthew chapter 26, verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon, a man who had a serious skin disease, a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive, fragrant oil. She poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. The Gospel of John goes on to say that she also anointed his feet and dried his feet with her hair. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. The theme of our sermon series between now and Palm Sunday is we're going to look at every time Jesus asks a question. Matthew 26, Matthew 27, Matthew 28. Every time you ask a question, we're going to do a deep dive and understand the context of the question. Jesus asks seven questions on the way to the cross. And so we're going to take a different question each week and explore why is he, who is he talking to and why is he asking this question? And how is he trying to refocus his listeners on the imperative need for him to journey to the cross? Here's the question. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? Now, he's talking to a bunch of guys. The first answer that comes to our mind is because it's high entertainment. Well, we like to bother women because it's funny. We like to see them get riled up. We like to see them jump and shout. We like to annoy them as guys. So the first initial question as a guy, when you read their answer, when you read this, why are you bothering this woman? Because this is what guys do. 
We find it incredibly entertaining, right up until the point it's not. Why are you bothering this woman? What better use of my time is there? Dear Heavenly Father, please give me a woman that I can bother for the rest of my life. Amen. And he answers that prayer for us all the time. He gives us a woman that starts out with her mom. We bother our mom. And then if we're very lucky, we end up bothering our wife. And maybe we'll be lucky enough to bother our daughters and our granddaughters. Why are you bothering this woman? Because I'm dying. And I think it's funny that, that that's the true state of just about every man that you know is a very pleasing discussion. Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. By pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she has prepared me for burial. I assure you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. Listen to what the disciples are saying when they say, Why this wait? This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. What was the value of the expensive perfume? You know, there's a a range that it could be. Uh, The the range that most biblical commentators seem to settle on is about a year's wages. Uh, It's hard for us to even fathom a a bottle of perfume or an ointment costing that much, Um, but it would seem that whatever she provided um, and and poured luxuriantly on Jesus was probably worth the better part of a year's wages. That seems to be the general consensus. Here is what the disciples... Well, here's the first mistake they made. And, and this kind of goes to the heart of what I stated in a humorous way, but there's a tragic side to it. Those of us who are in positions of power sometimes do not speak respectfully to those of us who are not. And in our world today, white males are in positions of power. And there's a lot of times that we're clueless to the privilege that we have. And it's hard for us to appreciate the authority and uh, the power that we have as a white guy, a North American white guy. There are different ways to, to, to get that perspective, uh, and I would encourage any of us to, to obtain it any way that we can, but part of the problem in this text is that it's very easy for us, those of us in positions of power and authority and privilege, to not be as kind and respectful as we should be. So there's definitely a male-female dynamic in this as well. It's not just a white guy. The disciples weren't white. They were uh, Palestinian. And so it doesn't really apply to this context here. But in this culture, there is a very stark divide between the authority of what a man could do in that culture and what a woman could do. And so it's absolutely a dynamic in this text. And that is something that you know, we need to be aware of in today's world as well. That there are times when those of us in positions of authority are not as polite and respectful to those of us who don't have as much authority and, and, and respect. And, and this is definitely one of the, the minor points of this text. And it's something that we should be aware of as men and women of faith. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. Let me summarize it just, just in my way. Uh, sentimental womanly baloney versus real man's work. If I were to kind of just summarize the, their question, why wasn't why this waste? Why wasn't this money 
garnished from you. If you have that kind of an asset, why are you pouring it all over one guy when you could have sold it and donated the funds to his ministry? Because Jesus, here's something you need to know. You have the authority and the power to heal. You have the authority and the power to teach like no one we've ever met. You have followers. You were just received as a coming king in the city of Jerusalem. People took off their outer garments and paved the way for you. And when they ran out of their outer garments, they started cutting branches off of trees, saying, Hosanna in the highest. Praise the Lord for the coming of his anointed one. And you said that if these people don't keep yelling out, that the very stones will cry out. The only thing lacking in your next step in ministry and authority and power is money. And it's sitting here. There's like a year's worth of money sitting here. What could you accomplish with your miraculous teaching, with your miraculous power, and with the acclaim of the people combined with Bloomberg's finances? You could be something, Jesus. Hear, hear what the disciples are saying. And we could be there with you. You're a shot. We pitched our wagon to your star. There's a reason we're not fishing today. There's a reason I'm not with my family today. There's a reason I'm two miles outside of uh, Jerusalem today and not up in Galilee. There's a reason, Jesus, and you're missing it. Here's, here's what the disciples are saying. Why was it? Why this waste? This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. It's sentimental womanly baloney versus real man's work. And Jesus, I'm disappointed in you. You're not making any sense to me. You're failing to capitalize on an opportunity. And, and we've already read Jesus' reply. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. I have served you a high-hanging curveball. I've lobbed it over the net. By pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she has prepared me for burial. When Jesus gave his teachings that the faithful servant, the wise servant, the good servant, the faithful slave is the one who has depth perception. Oh, you're giving me some resources and you're going away. I know what I can do. I can double those through hard work and wise investment. Oh, uh, I know how to be differentiated from a goat on the day when we're looking for sheep. I can be taking care of people the way I saw Jesus taking care of people, even though he's not here right now, and that will meet me right back up with him. I know exactly how to preserve my heart while I wait longer than I think I need to wait for Jesus' return. And oil has always been a symbol of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament text. I will make sure that I have enough of God's presence for not only today's needs, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to keep my heart soft to, to, to be ready for him when he returns. Mary had death perception. And when Jesus said, you know that the Passover takes place in two days and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified, Mary met him at the cross. The next time she shows up in the text, she's at the foot of the cross. Mary met him. She had death perception. 
Judas had to do was deliver Jesus in a quiet place at a quiet time. Because once Jesus was in the hands of the religious leaders of the day, we know that they were going to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. They already had it set up. They already had a narrative in place. All they needed was to get him in custody. They take care of the charges and the accusations and the death sentence. That was a done deal. That wasn't hard to do. The problem was getting him in custody quietly, where they could control the narrative. Because if they arrested him publicly, now they don't have control over the narrative, and there's going to be a problem. All they needed was a quiet place at a quiet time. Judas. What's it worth to you? The price of a slave. 30 pieces of silver. Lots of debate, too. You know, what was the price of Judas's treasure? Everywhere from a few hundred dollars to maybe a few thousand. Some commentators say that 30 silver pieces of silver represents two months' wages, something like that. So that, that would be obviously more significant amount of money. Long story short, uh, the, the worshipful sacrifice made by Mary was about a year's worth of wages, and the price of Judas's treachery may have been a couple months' salary at the most. It may have been less. Placing aside her fears, her needs, her thoughts, her agenda, she listened and she acted with true depth perception in what the disciples wished for she received when she worshipped. A couple of thoughts, and then I'm wrapping up our time together this morning. Uh, did you guys see uh, our new drummer today? That was fun. Did you notice? That was fantastic. He's only nine years old. <laughs> He's not nine years old. Are you 14? You're 15! 15 years old. You did a great job today. So when Vince says you're ready, you can come on back up because we're going to wrap this up today. You guys have a new song, right, at the end too? Is that new? Very cool. So, very proud of you. Thank you for your service. And so Vince is going to come and lead us as we wrap up our time together this morning. Here is where this sermon is landing. We're taking a look at seven questions that Jesus asked of his followers. Primarily, he asked a few other questions of some different people as well. The first question is, why are you bothering this woman? Why are you bothering this woman? And the answer is, is that she had depth perception. Because here's what Christianity is. Here, here's what Christians celebrate. That Jesus and the chief priests were on the same page, according to Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 5. Christians celebrate the fact that Jesus and the chief priests were on the same page for the last two days of Jesus' life. Christians celebrate this tragic turning of events where the disciples are seeing it going one way, but only Mary has the wisdom and the depth perception to see the way that it needs to go. And of course, we benefited from this tragic turn of events, this treacherous turn of events, because our salvation became possible. You and I don't need another king of the nation of Israel to read about. There's plenty of them. The Old Testament is filled with kings of Israel. None of them are doing us any good at all. None of them can intercede before the Father with us. None of them lived a perfect life and willingly gave it. But Jesus did. We needed him to go to the cross. And Christians celebrate this tragic turn of events, recognizing what took place. The question for us this morning is, what is the price that prevents our worship? What is the agenda that prevents our worship? Because in the heart of our disappointment, in the heart of the ways that we feel let down by our faith, in the 
one of the ways that we feel let down by our church, in the, in the heart of our disappointment sometimes with Jesus, there is a New Testament call for desperation. Something is going on and we're not seeing it. And we haven't responded in a trajectory of faith. In the heart of our disappointment, there is a call to be perceptive. There is a call for depth of perception. What is the disappointment that is going to prevent our worship? What is the disappointment that is going to harm our hearts? What is our ministry objective that is that we're going to actually place above worshiping Jesus? Like Mary, we need to meet Jesus at the cross. This is where we need to be. Hanging there, he looked terrible, he felt terrible, he sounded terrible, he smelled great. When he was praying in the garden by himself, the Old Testament says that the prayers of the saints are like a beautiful aroma of burning incense that rises before the throne of God. The disciples were snoring. What was his comfort in that moment? One woman died, and he couldn't escape the fragrance of her worship. In the heart of our disappointment, there is a call to be and so as we wrap up our time together this morning, here's a, a question that we can take with us this week. According to where Jesus is moving in his ministry right now, understanding that he's going to come back as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, what can I be doing this week to serve that Jesus? That's a merry question, right? What can I be doing this week to serve that Jesus? New Testament says that he, he died once. He's done with death. He's going to come back victorious and call his church home and forever put his enemies under his feet and forever be surrounded with those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus. What can we be doing today to serve that Jesus? That would be a perceptive question. That would help us overcome our doubts and our disappointments in whatever it is we're experiencing. Perhaps today for you, you've never committed yourself to Jesus in the best way that you can serve that Jesus, the one that is coming back for us, is to simply pray a prayer like this. Heavenly Father, I have not shown any depth perception at all. I have been reacting to life circumstances and it just brought me to a place of bitterness and anger because I don't know what's happening right now. I have never applied principles of faith to my life circumstances. And I'm done with that. Lord, I want to be the kind of person who can see what's coming, who can see what's happening and position myself by faith as I worship and celebrate the advent, the return of your son. I turn from my sin and everything that disappoints you and me, and I accept your son, Jesus Christ, by faith. Some of us might need to make that prayer this morning. For others of us who have been Christians for 400 years, we have gone through seasons of disappointment where we feel like we're mad at Jesus because you're missing opportunities. Lord, if you just answered that prayer in this way, then this would have happened, but you didn't, and now this is happening. And honestly, I feel like it's your fault because I brought it to you and the answer was no and I'm not happy with you right now. And so for the rest of us this morning, to spend some time in prayer understanding that in the heart of our disappointment is a call to be perceptive, to discern how the Lord is moving, understanding that he's going to come back victorious and we can live a life of faith now by answering that question, how do we serve that Jesus? 
Heavenly Father, thank you for your text. Thank you for the example of Mary. I pray that we would be humbled. I pray that we would be encouraged. I pray that we would be motivated. I pray that we would be repentant. I pray that we would be kinder to each other in light of her heart to worship you, to serve you in a way when nobody else was looking to serve you. They were looking to see their own agendas accomplished. She put your thoughts and ideas first and worshiped you. Of all the people on the planet who encouraged you on the road to the cross, it was her. Father, we want to be like that. Of all the churches in Eastern Connecticut who can be encouraging you as you prepare for your return, we want to be that kind of a church. We want to be the church that picks up right where you left off because we anticipated your needs as our coming king. We ask these things in Jesus' name.